Welcome to Inform from the Commonwealth Club, bringing you the people who are changing the world. Subscribe to our email newsletter so you never miss an upcoming event. Go to commonwealthclub.org email. You can watch or listen to our past programs or buy tickets to upcoming events in San Francisco and online at commonwealthclub.org. Thanks for joining us. Dr. Ibram X. Kendi is no stranger to our audiences. He has spoken at Commonwealth Club events four times just in recent years, as he has risen to national prominence at a time of widespread racial reckoning. For this, his fifth appearance, he is joined by Joel Christian Gill, a comics artist, to discuss their book, Stamped from the Beginning, A Graphic History of Racist Ideas in America. Dr. Kendi is the founding director of the Boston University Center for Anti-Racist Research and is the Andrew W. Mellon Professor in Humanities at Boston University. Gill is a cartoonist and historian and is the chair of the MFA in Visual Narrative at Boston University. Pulling together this conversation is our moderator, journalist Joshua Johnson. Today's program is part of our Good Lit series, underwritten by the Bernard Osher Foundation. Now here's Ibram X. Kendi and Joel Christian Gill talking with Joshua Johnson. Well, hey there. Welcome to today's virtual program of the Commonwealth Club. My name is Joshua Johnson. I'm a journalist and host of the upcoming podcast, The Nightlight, which you can find at nightlightshow.com. Before we dive in, the club would like to again thank the Bernard Osher Foundation for supporting today's Good Lit event. And this is going to be a great lit event because I am looking forward to talking about the book stamped from the beginning, presented in a way that history books are rarely seen, but probably should be seen more often. At least one of our guests is a name that you should definitely know. The other is a name you're going to know real well, especially the more we dig into this book. First, let me introduce Dr. Ibram X. Kendi and Joel Christian Gill. They are the authors of Stamped from the Beginning, A Graphic History of Racist Ideas in America. Joel Christian Gill is an award-winning cartoonist and a historian. He is the chair of the Masters of Fine Arts in Visual Narrative program at Boston University. He's also the author of the acclaimed memoir, Fights, One Boy's Triumph Over Violence. It was cited as one of the best graphic novels of 2020 by the New York Times, and it was the winner of the 2021 Cartoonist Studio Prize. Professor Gill, welcome. Glad to have you with us. Thanks for having me. Also with us today is Dr. Ibram X. Kendi. He is the Andrew W. Mellon Professor in Humanities at Boston University and the founding director of BU's Center for Anti-Racist Research. If you're not familiar with that term, anti-racist, we'll get into that a lot in the hour ahead. Back in 2020, Time Magazine named Dr. Kendi one of the 100 most influential people in the world. And in 2021, he was awarded the prestigious MacArthur Fellowship, what we commonly call the Genius Grant. Dr. Kendi, it's good to see you again. Welcome. It's good to see you. How are you? I'm very well, and I'm glad to discuss this graphic novel. It explores the history of how racist ideas have shaped American life and what we can learn from the past to build a more equitable, anti-racist future. I've got plenty of questions. I promise I will not spoil the book <laughs> for those of you who are watching, because I'm really digging it. And I think there's so much in this. I I don't want to give the whole thing away. So we'll try to do as much as we can to give you a clear idea of what's in it, but not spoil some of the real deep gems that are in the book. Still, whether you've read the book or not, and whether you read Stamp from the Beginning, the original text that this is based on, you may have some questions either about this text or just about the nature of how we talk about race, racism, anti-racism, and the imagery and ideas underlying all of that. Perhaps you have personal stories to share 
about how these ideas have affected you or your organizations, institutions, or people that you know. In any case, submit those in the YouTube chat. The Commonwealth Club team is gonna curate those questions and send them to me, and I will pepper them through the conversation as best I can. I know we've got a lot to discuss, but we've got an hour, and I can do a whole lot with an hour. So I think we're gonna cover a lot of ground. First of all, Professor Kendi, let me begin with you and this idea of being an anti-racist. I think that idea is foundational before we can talk about anything else. We know generally what racism is. I think we know what it is to consider yourself not racist, but you've introduced this idea over the last few years of being anti-racist, not just, I'm a nice person, I'm not a racist, but affirmatively calling yourself anti-racist. What is anti-racism? Well, I, I think it's important for us to understand uh, being anti-racist as the actual contrast to being racist. And so if a racist idea suggests, for instance, that a particular racial group is superior or inferior to another racial group, as we document in, in our book, then anti-racist ideas suggest the very opposite, that, that, that ra the racial groups are, are equals. If a racist policy is leading to inequity or injustice between racial groups, uh, then what's the opposite of that? A policy that's leading to equity and justice. Or if an individual is upholding a structure of policies that are leading to uh, inequity and injustice, that person is being racist. But if a person is pushing for a structure that of policies that's going to lead to equity and justice uh, for all people, then that person is being anti-racist. And, and so I've been trying to really allow people to recognize that the term not racist has historically been used by people who were being racist to exonerate themselves and even deny the ways in which their ideas and policies are racist, while to be anti-racist in some cases actually to acknowledge those times were being racist so we can be better, so we can grow. Professor Gill, this is a graphic novel adaptation of Stamp from the Beginning. Talk about the power of doing this through imagery instead of just through prose. There's a lot of cultural imagery that's referred to in Stamp from the Beginning that I think people will see in a very different way once we read this. But why adapt this into a graphic novel? Well, comics are sneaky way to teach people something, right? So when you think about the idea of the shared visual language that we all sort of adhere to, um, if I were to tell everybody in the audience, anybody watching to draw a house, everybody draws the same house, right? They draw a square with a rectangle, some maybe put some smoke coming out of the chimney. Everybody draws the exact same house. Um, and we do that because of that underpinning that some, you know, Baldo, I think it was a couple of French um, philosophers called um, um, semiotics, right? This language of how we, how the signs and symbols work. And those signs communicate on a subconscious level. So there are often times when you see a character, you pour yourself into it. So it builds a little bit of empathy. I always say comics are empathy machines. So you build, a, you, you have some empathy with that character. This is why when we see a smiley face, we recognize it as ourselves as opposed to recognize it as the other. Um, you know, like the, the most in 2015, the, the newest word of the year, the most, um, the word of the year was, uh, the LOL emoji. Right. And, and it was a smiley face and everybody, no one has ever asked for a smiley face, that yellow smiley face to be the color of their skin, because we all recognize that it's part, that it's a, it's a 
it's a abstraction of what we are. So drawing comics to tell these stories does something that prose alone doesn't. First, it reaches a, a large amount of people. It reaches a much broader amount of people who may not pick up a 579-page history tome, but would read a comic, right? Um, for example, my grandmother, who passed away last year at the age of 90, um, never I don't think she ever read novels, but I'm sure she read comics. She read my comics, at least. And if she were still here, she would be reading this book right now while she was taking her dialysis, right? So I think that that's the... Um, that's what I think connects us to those things. And I, you know, one of the things I think is really interesting is that I think I was a teenager before I realized Charlie Brown was white. And it was because of that simplicity of who he is and how he's drawn. He's basically a smiley face. And because of that, we pour ourselves into him and it creates empathy. And we know that it's creating empathy and we can tell because they keep banning them. As we get into this book, uh, Professor Gill, I just want to pick up on one thing that you were getting at in terms of these cultural images, I think that another value of this as a graphic novel, at least from reading the book, is that so many of these images, like you said, like Charlie Brown, are just kind of so ingrained culturally, we think nothing of them. They just kind of are there. They're just kind of the background noise of life. And because they're so ubiquitous, we never take a moment to go, what is that? Where did that come from? We don't even know how to look underneath the surface, because I think a lot of these people may not even know what to look at. And this gives us a chance to sort of look behind the images we've taken for granted for so long. Am I, am I hearing you right, Professor Gill? Yeah, and I think that those, I think that those images you know, have ability to communicate in ways that we don't necessarily think about. The best comics, when you read the best comics, you're, you don't think I'm looking at pictures, I'm reading words, right? You're absorbing it all at the same time. No one's ever stopped and thought, oh, I'm reading a comic, right? Because if you do that, then you failed at making comics. Like at that point, you're no longer making comics, you're making, you know, prose or you're drawing pretty pictures. And I think the best comics sort of combine those things so that you're no longer thinking about them. So when reading those, you're absorbing things. So those images are creating, like this, is when you when you write you are entering into a contract with somebody who else is the reader right you're you're gearing you're giving them some information and you're not not making them dumb right or acting like they're dumb so with comics it's a little bit step further right because i need joshua johnson to take what happens in the gutter between panels and fill in that space. And because of that active participation that you take, it, it's more ingrained. It's, it's more powerful. It, you feel it a little bit more. Before I go back to Professor Candy, you used an art term, gutter. Define that term, what, what you mean, just so people understand what you meant. <laughs> That's the space between the two, um, two panels. So between each panel, there's a gutter, and that's, that's the space. I actually call my classroom at, at BU the gutter because that's where the magic happens. So, And Joshua, I've been learning all these terms too. <laughs> okay, I just want people thinking, what's Joshua Johnson doing in that gutter? Come out of the gutter. That's not what the brothers are saying. Oh, speaking of terminology, I should just say, just so that we're all on the same page because there's lots of different people from many different walks of life and many different sensitivity levels, this conversation is going to deal with themes of race and racism in very candid and very honest and historically accurate ways. That may include the usage of the so-called N-word. I am not going to censor our guests today, but I think it's fair to let you know, you watching, that we are having an unfettered conversation about race and racism in America. Something to think about if there are children with an earshot and you want to be mindful in terms of how you have this conversation with them, but we are going to have an unvarnished conversation about these themes. And I think that's part of the beauty of the book, Professor Kendi, including just the title, Stamped from the Beginning. Early in the book, 
you get into a lot of historical depictions of many, many historical figures, including Jefferson Davis, the president of the so-called president of the Confederacy. Talk about that idea stamped from the beginning and why that is a strong enough idea to be the title of the book. Well, well, Jefferson Davis, as you stated, was would would become the president of the Confederate States of America. Before that, he was a senator from from Mississippi and a, and a major enslaver, and he was a major defender of you know of, of slavery, and uh, he was also an articulator of racist ideas in the floor of the U.S. Senate. To give an example, on uh, in 1860. Uh, his fellow senators were considering a bill that would have provided funding to educate Black people in Washington, D.C. He rose up in opposition to that bill. And in his opposing speech, uh, he said the inequality between the Black and white races was stamped from the beginning. And in many ways, as we show in this in this uh, in in this book, that racist ideas were stamped from the beginning uh, of you know of the United States, indeed of of, of British colonial America, and 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 we document uh, the history across time. Just looking at the artwork from here, and I'm I'm digging the artwork. This is such a beautifully drawn book, and it's also fun to read. It is not. It's not a drag. It's a really engrossing read. But the the quote that you put from him is the inequality of the black and of the white and black races was stamped from the beginning racial inequality is the will of god as marked in decree and prophecy as confirmed by history professor kendi one of the big themes of the book is that racism was not just viewed as well i don't like those people and that's the way it is there were many different ways in which racists justified racism and called it faith and called it science and called it law, but wrapped this logical framework around virulent racism as a way to kind of make it seem like, oh, yeah, this is the only way it could possibly be. Indeed. And, and before the Civil War, one of the leading secular theories articulating Black inferiority was what was known as polygenesis. It was this theory that each race was created separately. Uh, each race had its own creation story. It suggested that, at least in the biblical sense, we were not all descendants of a white Adam and Eve, as other racist theorists who were monogenesists made the case. And so polygenesists, like Jefferson Davis, typically made the case that, that Black people were created before Adam and Eve when the animals were created. And indeed, in his speech, in which he said the inequality of the white and black races was stamped from the beginning, he would then go on on the floor of the U.S. Senate to make a case for how and why black people were created with the animals. Can I just camp out on that for a second? When I read that in the book, I was like, what? I'm sorry, what? There's, a, there's one Adam and Eve for white folks, and we just kind of came out the lab. We were just an experiment, like pre-release. It just, it's just so wild, the, the depths of the ways in which racism was justified. And Professor Gill, your task in putting this book together was finding ways to articulate it, I think, without caricaturing it every time. I mean, some of them are just straight up like caricatures because the ideas are insane. But there's also a visual language to the book 
even the way that the the speech bubbles are colored and shaded. Some of them are in regular clear text. Some of them almost have like a black background that looks like it's dripping. Like you had to, like just to show the rottedness of these ideas. Talk about how you came up with the visual subtext, the visual language of this book. Yeah, I mean, when, when um, you know, it wasn't just, so it wasn't just like me reading the book and sort of adding to it. Like I went back and read the congressional record in which, you know, um, Jefferson Davis actually said this, which is, is actually bananas. Um, but going through this whole thing, um, I was wanting to make sure that, because comic speaks in that language that I was talking about, right? So comic speaks in this language that I wanted people to immediately teach you how to read this in the first, you know, couple of chapters. So that when you saw icons or you saw imagery or you saw things that were popped out, you knew that this was something that imp- that was important. And so early on, it was immediately one of the ideas that I had because those racist ideas are so prevalent. I mean, there's, you know, like that idea that, you know, black people are stamped from the beginning is inferior is still a common thing, right? Like, you know, you, you hear, you know, as Paul Fierley talked about these sub oppressors actually saying it like Tim Scott, right? These sub oppressors who go out to the world and say, well, you're not oppressed because they've gotten some power. So they come out, but those ideas are still out there, right? Um, That you're making some decisions. So I wanted to make sure that we always kept I wanted you to be able to open up a page and go, oh, there's a racist idea, there's a racist idea, there's a racist idea, and see how prevalent, and especially when, you know, that even some, you know, W.E.B. Du Bois says racist ideas. There are, there are other people who we actually, pro, you know, profoundly think are, and, um, you know, like we, 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 help, we hold a high esteem of, right, who actually create racist ideas. And I think it's a, it is a, um, an indication or an indictment of the system that we all hold racist ideas. And I think in order to, it's like, it's almost like that Catholic idea, like you ha- in order to be a good person, you have to practice being good. Right. And it's the exact same thing. When, when, when thinking about anti-racist, anti-racist ideas, you have to fight against all of those things. We've been taught those things, all those racist ideas throughout history in society from the time we were, you know, in third grade to, you know, in, in kindergarten until, you know, now, like you got to look back at these things and go, these are racist ideas. And so I wanted to pinpoint those and I, it's almost like sticking a pin in it, right? I wanted people to be able to look at that and go, oh, that's a racist idea. This is a racist idea. And I think that's the beauty of what comics does is that it takes that information and it and it encapsulates it in a way that you automatically see it. Like, you don't, once you see that one time, you don't have to think to yourself, oh, this must be a racist idea. You just know it is. And I think that's what I'm trying to do when I'm talking about those things and sort of dig into some of the, the history as well. We are speaking to Dr. Ibram X. Kendi and Boston University Professor Joel Christian Gill, both of Boston University. Their new book is called Stamped from the Beginning, A Graphic History of Racist Ideas in America. Happy to take your questions and thoughts and stories about racism, racist ideas, or how we have the conversation about race in American culture today. It's not identical to what's happened in the past, but it sure does rhyme. And one of the things that comes out in this book are all the rhyming moments from some of the things we see today and many of the things we've seen in the past. If you have questions or thoughts or critiques, we'd love to hear contrasting points of view as well. Put them in the chat here in the YouTube stream and the Commonwealth Club team will curate those for us and I'll pepper those questions in right away as the hour goes on. Before I come back to you, Professor Kendi, I wanna get into the structure of the five historical figures that you chose to focus this book around. Some people may know, some at least I did not know until I had read this book, but I just wanna camp out on the introduction for just a second because it's it's a really like 
you got an attitude. You know that? You got an attitude. And it, and it popped out from, from page one. I'm going to try to do a dramatic reenactment of the introduction. It's, it's like you're looking at a TV and there's an image of a white woman being held aloft on the shoulders of a group of young black people. And then you see the text of the announcer's voiceover. And the voiceover reads, we now return to today's after-school special, Beauty Among the Beasts, the heartwarming story of Karen White, played by Cassie Blanca, a beautiful young woman who saves a group of poor black ghetto kids, co-starring Gary Coleman as the cute and sassy Sam's Little, brought to you by Citizens for Law and Order to re-elect Ronald Reagan, and Sugary Sugar Spokes, part of a complete breakfast. That's page one. And I'm reading it, I'm like, what? What part of the game is this? What is this about to be? I, I wonder, Dr. Kendi, how you two had the conversation about the tone of the book. Because you're right, Professor Gill. Like, I think if you show somebody like this much book and say, educate yourself, they're going to be like, uh -huh, maybe another time and back off. This was a real, I was not ready for this to be the beginning of the book. I, as a black person, expected the book to be a little bit more serious. But the humor in it, I was like, okay, I don't exactly know what this book is going to be, but I'm down for it, whatever it's about to be. Talk about what you've learned over the years, Professor Kendi, in terms of tone and style when you talk about things that are as big and scary as racism and race. Well, first, let me just say that I think this, the, this, the, the humor, in many ways, the critical humor is, 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 is one of the, the, the beautiful elements, you know, of the book that I think uh, you know, Joel was able to uh, introduce a, a sort of a master class of uh, finding that balance between sort of humor and a sort of a criticality uh, and even storytelling. But I, I've learned over the years that human beings are human, right? So we we need a variety of emotions no matter what we're talking about, right? And, and and even if we're talking about a heavy subject like the history of racist ideas, yes, people recognize its heaviness, but they they need some lightness in in parts of it, uh, if not most of it. And and that's a way in which they can get through the heaviness. And so in many ways, the lightness, the humor becomes almost like the road for people to, to get through this history, you know, in, in, in a, you know, and learn from it and, and be engrossed by it. You tell this story through five historical figures, Cotton Mather, Thomas Jefferson, William Lloyd Garrison, W.E.B. Du Bois, and Angela Davis. Why did you pick those five? Let's just start with Cotton Mather. Why him? Why is he the first figure that you wanted us to see this story through? Well, Cotton Mather lived from the 1660s in Boston to about the 17, the 1720s. And during that period, really, which was the, obviously the colonial era, uh, theolo theologians really dominated science or, quote, intellectual activity. And so the principal thinkers were, were theologians, and he was the most influential uh, American theologian during the colonial era, particularly during that era. And he also wrote on and spoke about slavery and race. And, and so he was at the center of, of some of the most important early debates about race. So I thought it was important to, to place him 
you know, as, as, a, as a character since he was at the center of these early debates that we were going to portray. He also, you, uh, you and, and you, Professor Gill, as well, go to some lengths to portray him as something of a golden child, a guy who believed very much that he was sort of imbued by God to say the things that he was saying with a sort of a righteous religiosity that was just bulletproof. And because there was no real movement to meet that, that belief system, that was just kind of understood and accepted. There was no kind of way to give, to give pushback for that. Am I, am I kind of hearing his story right? Yeah, I think, I mean, in every era of history, there was always people who were opposing views, who were saying things that were the opposite of what these people were saying. This is why that whole argument of like, you can't criticize people because they were people of their time when there's always somebody in that time who's, you know, waving the banner of like, this is wrong. Um, And, um, but it's not unlike, I mean, you know, Cotton Mather was the, you know, the, um, what's the guy from the 700 club that just died? He was that guy of his age, right? Uh, Pat Robertson. He was Pat Robertson, right? He was Pat Robertson, Joel Osteen. He was, you know, TD Jakes. He was like that guy, right? Of the time. So Pete, and he would just say stuff, right? And, and because you're in this position of power, and, you know, most people were as un- uneducated. It just sounded like he would just make stuff up, like the Negro Christianized, right? Like this whole thing is just like made up of whole cloth, like everything's made up. But at the same time, like he's just making up these random things. And so, of course, you know, a life of privilege that he had geared with the way in which he was raised, like the fo- the foundational ideas of Princeton, Brown, Harvard and Yale are racist ideas. Um, and until we sort of dismantle those in a lot of ways, the same way people are dismantling the church as, as de- deconstructing the church as well. But until we start, de- we start dealing with that, those ideas are going to keep coming up. And so, yeah, Cotton Mather was, you know, the forefront, they were the forefront of thought, right? Most of the time we hear, when we hear science, when we talk about that period in time, those people are the ones that dominate. And I think, um, Cotton Mather thought, I mean, he thought he, I mean, a, he thought he walked on water, right? He was told that, you know, he was told that he is the chosen one. He was the youngest person to go to Harvard. He was of these two fam, like his family founded Harvard. Like he is like the worst rich kid you could think about, right? Like think about that kid in class, right? That was like, my dad gave the money for the college, right? He is that kid like times 10. And so like, yeah, it made him an asshole. Sorry. <laughs> That's all right. Hey, we're all adults. I already did the disclaimer, so we're good. We're good. But I, I hear what you're saying in terms of him being able to imbue these ideas into these institutions from their inception. I think that's what we mean when, when you hear something like this institution was founded on racist ideas. That's not a dig. Like you can point to the founders and the ideas and draw a very direct connection, which Professor Kendi continues, I think, to take shape in the second section about Thomas Jefferson, because that begins to get into the enlightenment, the expansion of science as a means for making life and governmental decisions. And you point to a number of the areas in which the sciences are used in new ways to justify these ideas, including some scientists who are foundational in our understanding of everything. I mean, Carl Linnaeus, who formed our system of like naming animals, calling something like a homo sapiens or, you know, feline domesticus for the house cat or whatever the name is. 
even he created these hierarchies of different races that are not based in what we now understand about genetics. So we kind of went from this religious basis to when science rose, it immediately applied to these racist beliefs as well. Indeed. And if, if Cotton Mather um, made the case that though we all, though we may be different in body, in other words, Black people are physically inferior and worthy of enslavement because they have a distinct body, we are all equal in soul and all souls are white. So Black people should be ministered to. And he challenged enslavers who said no. Uh, but by, to your point, by the 1700s, particularly by the mid-1700s, that, of course, was the age of, in, of, of this European enlightenment. And, of course, enlightenment thinkers like Linnaeus and, and even American thinkers who were inspired by them, like Benjamin Franklin and Thomas Jefferson, uh, were one of their primary intellectual uh, activities was classifying the entire world. <laughs> Uh, but most specifically classifying humanity. And so it was during this period that the, quote, uh, Black African, white European, uh, red American, and, and yellow Asian, uh, you know, emerged. And, and not only those racial classifications became hardened, but there was also characteristics Linnaeus attached uh, to Black people, particularly inferior characteristics relative to uh, white people. And those characteristics were later articulated by Thomas Jefferson. Thanks for joining us as we listen to Ibram X. Kendi and Joel Christian Gill in conversation with Joshua Johnson. You're listening to a broadcast from Inforum at the Commonwealth Club of California. You can support our radio program and find out about more upcoming events that you can see live in San Francisco at commonwealthclub.org slash inforum. And I just want to be clear for the people in back who may not have caught it. This was entirely made up. This was science that was made to fit the theory or fit the, the dogma, not science that emerged like, see, we proved this thing. We knew we were right all along. Like some of this was just whole cloth, right? Well, you had people like Linnaeus and, and others who were classifying human beings in Africa and Asia and the Americas, and they had never been to <laughs> Africa, Asia, uh, or, or, or the Americas, uh, or um, they were classifying them from a European perspective, right? Or they were classifying them to justify colonialism, uh, to, to justify this idea that Europeans... Uh, we're bringing, quote, civilization and Christianity to these inferior barbaric peoples, which, of course, uh, uh, and, and so I, I think it's important and, and we it's important to recognize the relationship between enlightenment thinkers creating this massive hierarchy, human hierarchy and European explorers and settler colonialists subjugating peoples of color, particularly in this case, black people. I think it's also really important to like think about it in terms of like this is like they were they were taking these ideas and they were basically applying stupid logic 
to the things. Well, if this is this, then this must be this, right? So if we are, if we have gunpowder and giant ships, then those people in Africa with their, you know, different ways of living must be inferior because of that. And then you add on to that the the monetary gain of capitalism. And then it becomes like we have to just so like these people are saying it. It's almost like I'm gonna come up with an idea. And then the capitalist is like, I think that's a really good idea to use this so that I don't feel bad or that I can use this to make the argument that I could subjugate a person. And I think that that continue like that, like those ideas, those, those, those continuing ideas, the idea that we should administer to black people's soul is no different than people saying, we're all, why don't you just be American? Don't, don't be black. I'll just be American. Right. It's those same sort of ideas that just regurgitated and changed over time. That also comes up in some of the early stories where there is this mix of, and this, I, I have to admit, like one of the things that I took from this book was having a more nuanced view of some of the black luminaries that I grew up knowing. Like I knew about the debate between Booker T. Washington and W.B. Du Bois, who's one of the five kind of keystone figures you tell the story through. And I knew about his idea of the talented tenth. But I think it's also helpful to see the real nuance in how even some of like the names that I had to know for the Black History Month quiz every February had a mix of ideas that we now would call anti-racist and others that were more assimilationist, where it was like, you know, black people who are luminaries saying we can aspire to be like whites. I mean, you tell the story of Phyllis Wheatley. It was a slave girl who wrote poetry and there was a trial to determine, did she actually write this? And sure enough, she did. But you include some of the lines in there that clearly have these assimilationist ideas. For example, on page 63, you quote one of her poems, which reads, some view our sable race with scornful eye. Their color is a diabolical dye. Remember, Christians, Negroes black as Cain, C-A-I-N, Cain and Abel. Remember, Christians, Negroes black as Cain may be refined and join the angelic train. Professor Kendi, before I get to some questions from our audience, talk about that about the interlocking nature of anti-racist and assimilationist or anti-racist and various kind of appeasing ideas. It was never cut and dried from the very beginning. It, it, it wasn't. And this is the reason why this is a book about ideas and, and knowing that the same person can hold conflicting ideas. The same person can hold racist and anti-racist or assimilationist and, and, and anti-racist ideas. But I, I think to explain the distinction between segregationist and assimilationist and anti-racist ideas, which we document this almost three-way debate, is segregationists and assimilationists both conceived of whiteness or white people as the standard. And segregationists would make the case that Black people are incapable of becoming white, thereby civilized, thereby human. Assimilationists were like, no, Black people are capable of becoming white, of being refined, of being developed, of being civilized. And anti-racists were like, wait, we shouldn't have a single standard <laughs> that all humans should, should, quote, aspire to be, that we should have multiple ways of you know, of, of, of being in the world. So, so anti-racists would say that Black people aren't just created equal, they are equal. And 
And so that's the sort of three-way debate. And so you had assimilationists who were even Black who internalized the idea of of white people as being uh, the sort of norm or the standard. And then they attempted to be just like white people and made the case that Black people were capable. So like in the case of the Talented Tenth essay by W. Du Bois, in that essay, he argued that a certain segment of Black people have 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 assumed the best of European civilization, and we are the talented tenth, and and I think that's a, an indicative. That's a that's an example of we are talented because we have done what Europeans have done, as opposed to we are just as talented as any other group because we're just as human. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, there's a little Bill Cosby caricature in here at the top that I was like, ooh, that's that's the, that might be too soon. That still hurts. Regarding the nature of the book, let me get to some questions from our viewers. Again, thanks to those of you who have sent questions in. They're great. I'm going to try to get to as many as I can in the time we have left. One person asked, and maybe Professor Gill, you could start with this one. Can you talk about the collaboration process between the two of you while working on this book? Were there times of disagreement or conflict? And how did you overcome them? Professor Gill? I don't think there was any conflict. Um, Dr. Kendi was gracious to just like the, what I say a lot of the times. And um, I think this is the best way to describe it is like for me to thank Dr. Kendi for letting me put fart jokes in his history tome. Um, because for the most part, like if they're like, for example, I'll just give a really one really good example. Um, when writing about Dr. King, when we got to the March on Washington, I was drawing this panel that Martin Luther King's given his I have a dream speech. And he says, I have a dream that one day white girls will post a picture of me on their Instagram or I have a dream that conservative politicians will misquote me in order to win political arguments. And at whatever happened, like the universe kismet, at the same time, Dr. Kennedy had just written in the, in the Atlantic, a situation about the misrepresentation of Dr. King. And so like I texted him that image um, that I had drawn and it's just like this weird thing that was happening. So for the most part, he gave me the free reign to go and do things. And if I thought, if there was something um, that was um, like over the top, because I am over the top. I'm a troll. Like I admit it. Um, we talked about it, but it wasn't like a, I wasn't like a, you know, like there's a lot, the only line in the sand that I drew ever in this whole process was the force ghost jokes that I put in there. Um, Cause they're force ghosts. Whenever anybody comes back, I make them a force ghost. So like, it's like, thanks force ghost, Martin Luther King, or thanks force ghost, Leo, the African. You mean like they have that aura around them and some of them have chains like Jacob Marley and yeah. Yeah. So like um, that, I think that's the only one that I'm like, let's keep that one, please. Um, but for the most part, it was just um, I tried to be as accurate as I possibly could. Um, so like legitimately copying and pasting from the book in places so that I could get the text. But when it came to like writing the dialogue and the um, and the jokes and stuff, it was just it was I, I had free range, which was which was incredible. It's unlike any other process that I could ever have worked with art writers before. And this is so much better than any other process. Let me stick with you, Professor Gill. Someone else asked, can you talk a bit about how you got into drawing or being a cartoonist? How did you study and perfect your craft? Um, I didn't perfect my craft. I am perfecting my craft <laughs> as we go along. Um, you know, like if you stop learning, then you stop growing. Um, I started out, I got my MFA in painting. Um, but as a kid, I wanted to be a cartoonist. I always tell people that comics was the thing. Comics was my high school girlfriend. We spent every day together. I was going to, we were going to, we were going to make beautiful children together. And then I went away to college. Um, and went away to college and I found, I fell in love with painting. And then like, I left my college girlfriend. I fell in love with painting. We had a couple of kids. It didn't work out. 
And then one day in a coffee shop, I saw comics again, and we've been happily married ever since. Um, that's the way I describe it. Um, but um, so comics was the thing that I wanted to do. And um, but ultimately, I am a storyteller. And so when my my paintings were failing to tell stories, I went back to the idea of, of drawing comics. And for that, what I did was I got myself a library degree in comics. And a library degree is when you have a library card and a will. And I just went and learned everything I could read the entire canon and just practiced it. So um, if anybody out there who wants to be a cartoonist, there's a lot of ways to do it. The first thing is to start drawing comics. There's nobody stopping you from doing that. Or you can go study with Joel at, at BU. <laughs> you could. You could indeed. You could indeed. Professor Candy, let me put the next question to you. One of our viewers writes, I'm a white millennial man who lives in the Bay Area. It's been difficult to speak with older white generations of the urgency around our world today. What are some strategies to convey this urgency? If I may just add on to the question, I wonder if part of the challenge is imbued in some of the cultural images that you deal with. You talk in the book about things like Tarzan and Planet of the Apes and other stories that are so much a part of our cultural canon that have these really intense racial underpinnings. And I'm I think once you reach a certain point, and again, I'm saying this is a person who's not in these generations, it can be harder to kind of keep looking back and go, wait, I lived my entire life with no problem with this whole thing. And now you're telling me I've spent 70 years, 80 years supporting something that was racist from the beginning, la, la, la. And they just, it's, it's just hard to hear. I wonder if maybe generationally it's, it's, a, it's a process of giving people permission to look behind the curtain and see a man when they spent their whole life just thinking it's the wizard. Indeed. And, and, and so I would, I would really try to meet, this is for anyone, but, but certainly we're talking about uh, older people. I'd try to really meet them where they are. I'd, I'd really try to figure out what are the things that, what are the issues in society that they personally are passionate about, or even what are the problems they are angry about? And, and and not the made up ones, right? But the real ones, right? And just, you have to sort of distinguish because you have people who are, who are actively seeking to conserve racism by making up problems and distracting people. But I suspect there, there are real issues that they're concerned about. And, and, and learning those and thinking about those, it's likely there are some racial or racist elements to those problems that you could essentially guide them to. So you're meeting them where they are. They're talking about an issue they're already passionate about. And now they can see the ways in which racist policies or even ideas have actually led to or reinforced the very problem that they recognize and that they are outraged about. So it's just so important. So let's say, for instance, they are enraged about the climate crisis. And in their mind, you know, this is it's 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 you know, this is the climate crisis. There's no racial, quote unquote, element to it. Um, well, I, there's two ways to do it. There's a to talk about how the very elected officials who are denying the climate crisis are and therefore refusing to make significant changes because of those denials are the very elected officials who are likely denying racism. It's the same group, 
right? Uh, or the ways in which the people who have been elected into those positions to deny the climate crisis and not move on it were typically elected through racist ideas, through manipulating people into believing uh, that people of color were the problem. So that's just one one example. Can I, I can give another example because I think it's this is really I think this is one that we hear a lot of, which is black on black crime. Most most criminologists and sociologists agree that crime is is a is an opportunity situation. It is because of proximity, right? It's because you're in a neighborhood within. So most crime among black people happens among black people. Most crime against white people happens amongst white people. Why do we still have proximity crime for black people and white people? It's because of segregation. So pointing out this idea that all black people still live in a predominantly one place and all white people still live in a predominantly one place is an indication of the structural systems that put us in those places in the first place, which, which perpetuates these ideas. Right. And so people forget. So when you hear these people yelling about what about black on black crime, say, yeah, black on black crime is a, is pr- about proximity. Right. And because most crime is is based on where you live, then you're actually pointing out structural racism when you point out black on black crime. Let me get to a few more questions in the time we have. I want to make sure we get to this one, particularly because of what's been going on with educational policy in the last few years. Uh, Professor Gill, maybe you start with this, and then Professor Kendi, I'll, I'll let you jump in. The viewer asks, I'm grateful there are academics like you releasing more books and resources to address the issues of racism with children. How else can we address the issues of racism with children? Professor Gill, let's hear from you, and then Dr. Kendi. Well, there's a book called How to Raise an Anti-Racist that you could look at. Um, There are having difficult conversations with with children um, specifically. um, One of the things that I think is really interesting is that a lot of the things, which is a fascist talking point about like protecting the children, it becomes one of those. It's like it's in the like list of fascist talking points. Right. We have to protect the children. We're we're considering to protecting white children from feeling uncomfortable about the connection with those people who did these things in the 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 colonial human traffickers, like those types of individuals, right? Well, why would you, why would you want your child to be connected to that other? Cause the only way to connect through that is whiteness. And when children take up the mantle, when, when there, there are white people and then there are people who happen to be white. And when they pick up that mantle of whiteness and connect themselves through history, through culture, through anything else with those individuals, that's when, that's when they're going to feel bad. So there's part of this is the, don't, Teacher teach especially little kids not to not to connect themselves to this idea, because um, the idea of whiteness is different from the idea of blackness. Blackness was forced upon us, e pluribus unum, right? Out of many one, black people were many different peoples forced into one category. Um, white people in America were there is no there is no real white people, and the only way you have that is in opposition to black people, um, because when you take poor white people and you put them in a place where there's predominantly white people. Um, the the aristocracy sort of do the exact same thing to those poor white people that they would do to poor black people. So there's no connection. There's no sort of um, community that's created because of that whiteness. And so first of all, I would say disconnect yourself from the idea of whiteness. Like tell kids like, yeah, you happen to be white and you recognize that there are privileges in that, but you are not those people. And that and because those people are white does not mean that you are them. Number two, in order to understand how our history works, we have to understand where it came from. And by constantly arguing that we shouldn't talk about it just means that we won't be talking about it and we won't fix those problems. And I think that's really important. 
and read how to how to raise an anti-racist. Professor Candy, before you answer, I feel like one of the benefits of talking to children about racism is children are very receptive to stories. And I think the story of America, if you lay it out right, a child's mind can just grasp it and it's, it'll click. Like you have characters who are in a conflict that you explain that there are people who are trying to help one another. I mean, it's, we, we, we teach through narrative. It's Sesame Street, right? You set up a situation and you impart a value. I think what scares a lot of parents is what happens when the story is over and your kid is laying in bed. And, you know, I've had conversations with white parents about this too, in terms of talking about racism, where they're afraid that their kid is going to run into their bedroom and say, mommy, I had a nightmare that I hurt my black friend. And the parent is ill-equipped, right? They're afraid to be in that moment alone when your book is not at their bedside or where their, you know, their friend who's willing to talk about this is not there. And all of a sudden, in an instant, they have to walk their children through an adaptation that they are still adapting to themselves. How do they deal with that? I'm happy you mentioned that because it, it is a, a difficult process to ideally ensure that our, our children are learning racist ideas, I should say learning anti-racist ideas, at the same time, we're unlearning racist ideas. So like, it's it's a hard thing to navigate, you know, as, as, a, as a parent. And, but it's possible, right? Because the more we teach them anti-racist ideas, the more we learn them ourselves. But what we're also speaking to is us as adults recognizing how hard it is to unlearn racist ideas. And for us to say, you know what, I don't want my kid to wake up when they're 30 or 50 or 70 and be like, whoa, like, how did I ever come to to think this way about other groups of people? And it's so hard to not think this way. I've been trying for years. No, I want my child to not have to go through that struggle. You know, but to the question, the only thing I would also add is really navigating the child through experiences. So navigating the child to different cultural spaces so they can see different cultural groups and see those diff- that different cultural groups as equals. Allowing them to, to go to a, uh, you know, a food pantry and talk to them about why is it, if this is the case, that the people who are coming here are disproportionately people of color. And, and, and explain to them, because they're likely to ask, that it's not because there's something wrong with them. There are larger rules that are leading to this. So I think we have to take our children out into the world so that they can experience things, so they can ask questions, so we can be prepared to have those conversations. So we're not literally lecturing them all the time. Um and, and typically, I know when my seven-year-old asks questions, that's when she's most likely to listen to my answer. When the question comes from her. Before I get to our next few questions, I know we've got just a few minutes left. It sounds like, Professor Kendi, that we need to give ourselves a little grace in terms of how we deal with this and just allow it to be hard. Just acknowledge that it is difficult and do it anyway and give ourselves some grace to deal with the difficulty. I mean, as a... In Joe mentioned my book, How to Raise an Anti-Racist. That was one of the themes. I consistently and constantly talked about my struggles doing this with my daughter, despite all my training, um, you know, and expertise. So if it's a struggle for me, I know it's going to be a struggle, you know, for everyone because it, this is hard work. 
but but we have to do it to protect our children. Let me stick with you, Dr. Kenny. Another question from one of our viewers. Was there any image that Joel drew that particularly moved you or surprised you on how it was interpreted? So there were numerous images that 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 moved me. And and I'll just mention one since we we already talked about it was that those the opening image, you know, of the of the image of, of, of quote Karen White, which I think is is extremely relevant you know, to our time because, and I think that's one of the beauties of, of comics, let me just say, and I'm almost jealous of, of Joel because he can tell whole stories through an image, right? We as, as writers, we have to, we have to write a whole paragraph or a whole uh, chapter when just the term Karen White <laughs> says, says all that needs to be said. We are winding down. I do want to get to one or two more questions. If I can, I will plant the seed for our last question. It's traditional for the Commonwealth Club to ask speakers what their 60-second idea is to change the world. So I'll let you percolate on that in the background as I ask one more question, starting with you, Professor Gill. The viewer asked, what is the best piece of advice that you've received, either personally or professionally? Professor Gill? Be kind to yourself. Um, I think um, don't give um, the world the responsibility of being kind to you. We're often really hard on ourselves, just artists and people in general. Um, we are very self-critical. And um, somebody told me once that if you don't take care of yourself, treat yourself like a three-year-old in a lot of ways. Like if a three-year-old made a mistake, you wouldn't start cursing at them and calling them an idiot. You'd be like, that's okay, baby. Let's, let's do it next time, right? And I think that's what you have to do for yourself um, because we, we often spend too much time being critical in, of ourselves. And I think it's really important, especially artists um, and creatives of any sort. You have to be kind to yourself. That's got to be hard, though, as a creative. I know just as someone who works as someone who works in a different kind of creative profession, that does not, that does not come natural. Being critical is not the same as not being kind, right? Like it's just not, they don't, they're not the same thing. And I think we have the idea that critical means to be negative, but it doesn't. For example, if I had a booger on my nose and I said, how do I look today? You would say, you need to blow your nose right? That's not being, that's, that's being critical. You criticize the way I looked. You said you gave me some opinions on how to fix it and I fixed it and I moved forward going out into the world. That's how all criticism should be. It should be about making, helping somebody be better. It's not just about hearing yourself talk or tearing somebody else down. And then you should do that to yourself too. When you're self-critical, it should be making, try to, how do you make, how do I make these hands better? How do I make this composition better? Not this composition is trash. I should just go throw myself away. It's not like that. It's more about like how you take care of yourself. Professor Kennedy, what about you? Best piece of advice you've received, either personally or professionally? I, I think that finding a balance between humility and confidence has has been probably the best piece of advice. And so I, I think what that means, and this adds to, to Joel's point, to even when you achieve or you're successful you don't necessarily gloat or think that you're the best thing since sliced bread. You 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 approach success with a level of humility, humility, and you approach failure with confidence that okay, this is a single act. I'm going to keep striving. I'm going to keep growing, uh, and I think both that that sort of humble confidence allows us to both succeed and fail with grace. 
Another viewer asks, thank you so much for this discussion. Taking into account the divisive world we live in today, how do you hope we carry your book's findings forward to meaningfully enact change? Professor Kendi, how would you answer that? I would really just say there, there are, despite the divisiveness, there are a number of people who are serious, who are open-minded and who are serious about understanding their world, understanding their history, transforming their society. And so, uh, and that even includes people who are open-minded, but they have different viewpoints. So to me, it's really introducing the book to open-minded people, whether they agree with you, you know, or not, and, 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 and allowing the, the magic of the book to, 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 you know, it's empathy machine, as, as Joe calls it, to, to do its work. Professor Gill, what about you? This, is, this ties into the 60-second, how do I change the world? I think stories are important. Um, you know, when, you, when, when, when a civilization is gone and we unearth the civilization, what we find are their stories, their art and their stories. Um, and that's what we have to carry them. When you have a conversation with you and one other person, what you exchange are stories, where you grew up, how you live, what you like, what that television show, all of those things, you exchange those stories. Stories, are, I believe, are the building blocks of humanity. And I think that those little bits and pieces that we share with each other over a cup of coffee in a bar or just standing in the line at the DMV, those little bits and pieces of humanity actually build empathy. And I think when we are more empathetic to other people and understanding where they come from and where they are, which is what Dr. Kennedy says, meeting people where they are, meeting people where they are. And I think, you know, the original translation of, of what the golden rule is that what we get it wrong. We always say do unto others as you should have others do unto you. And I'm not religious, but the original translation is do unto others as they would have them done unto themselves. Right. And understanding that moving forward. Um, so meeting someone with they are, where they are, sharing those personal stories. And, you know, studies have shown that personal stories actually change more, more opinions than facts and figures. If you are somebody who is um, queer and you, and you run across somebody who is like anti, if you have a personal story in conversation with them on a less heated level, you can actually change their mind. I mean, we've all had those people in our lives that were devout racist until they met that guy at work who helped them or, you know, or, you know, like any any other thing. Right. Any other of those isms. Right. And I think that's important to rebuild empathy and to build that empathy one person at a time. Sometimes like I'm a macro level, I'm a troll. Right. I'm going to make people angry. But on a micro level, I'm going to talk to people and I'm going to have a conversation so that I can teach people how, like I'm, so I can teach them and share that story. And when all else fails, hug people, because hugging people always helps. Now, see, you keep describing yourself as a troll. And my brain was like, oh, no, he's not. Look at this book. It's so wonderful. And then the other half of my brain was like, you just met this brother. You haven't seen him on Twitter. Just like to take his word for it. Just, just accept what he said and, and let it be what it is. We got five minutes left. I want to get to two more quick questions. I know you just gave your 60-second idea, Professor Gill. Professor Kendi, one more question for you. There are so many loud talking heads out there perpetually the ideas of racism. Is there someone in particular that you would want to send this book to? <laughs> I'm laughing because I have some ideas. That, hold it, hold it. I, this Professor Kendi, like, because I know you got ideas. That's why I asked him. Professor Kendi, who would you want to send this book to? Uh, so the re it's a hard question for me to answer because I would want it to send it to someone who is loud and and, and indeed racist, but also maybe open-minded so that they will truly read it and reflect 
on it. And I think the problem is most of these loud folks, they know they're wrong. They're, they're, they're propagandists. And so I say that almost a dodge to the question because no one is coming to mind. <laughs> I don't know if Joel, Joel, is there somebody? I mean, most, most of my, most of my ideas are just like trolling ideas. Like I would love John McWhorter to read the book. <laughs> I think um, John McWhorter. See, I knew. I knew that's why that's why I put it to Professor Kennedy, because I, I was like, OK, I know where this is going to go. I know where this is going to go. There are a few people who I think, you know, like in meeting like and maybe even politicians meeting them um, on a one on one level, um, as opposed to what they do on television is completely different than when you meet them on a one on one level. But I think that there are people who I, I think would read it and um, and have um, some understanding. Um, but, but, but they won't, but, but the, the current climate won't allow them to say that, um, they, you know, and, and I'm not talking about, and, and there are, there are a lot of black conservatives that I wish would read this book. Um, but the problem with a lot of those black conservatives, not the people who have come to these ideas through, through different means, as opposed to, you know, just basically, um, reappropriation becoming sub oppressors, like, um, Clarence Thomas or Candace Owens or any of these other people who basically deny, but there are some people who, um, and I, there's a guy whose name I can't remember right now, but I would consider like that's somebody who I think could, could, um, and, um, who I think should read it. Um, and I can't think of his name, so it's kind of pointless, but there, I mean, there are people that you want to be sort of like, like Dr. Kennedy said, like open-minded. Um, but the problem is, is that the people who, and I guess it would mostly be regular people that would be like the ones that are open minded, that are not entrenched right. in those ideas and don't have a power, don't don't they're not beholden to this power structure that they have to hold up. Right. Because if, you know, Candace Owen wrote this book and changed her mind, like she would lose her entire base. She would lose all of her money. Right. Um, if, you know, that woman from the um, Prager U were to read this book, she would also lose like all of these people, these conservative, you know, um, um, grifters. Um, um, you know, um, if they were to read it, they would lose something. So it's more about like that. And it's like your cousin who is like, I don't know, like they, that sort of makes sense. Like give him that book. Right. You know, right, like right. uncle that like, sort of like, I don't, I, you know, that you have all these really fond memories of, but when he starts talking about this stuff, it's just like that stupid, like give him that book. Right. I think it's those kind of people that I would focus on. I wonder if Dr. Kennedy, to give you the last word, if that dovetails with your 60 second idea to change the world. But why don't you give us that idea and then I will wrap it up. You get the last word, sir. Well, we, we, we I think we, we, we live in a world of all sorts of inequality, of course, racial and class and gender and ethnic and national and uh, obviously um, sexuality. And, and, and I, I wish that we as human beings were able to equate difference and and recognize that these inequities are the result of oppressive structures of, of bad laws and policies as opposed to continuing to believe the myth that there's something wrong with that group on the lower end of those those disparities and almost sort of blaming the victims. I mean, if we were as human beings to, to really embrace our differences and, and, and really equate across difference and really say, if there's inequality, it's because there's something bad about our structures as opposed to our peoples, I believe we'd be able to really revolutionize our world. 
The book is called Stamped from the Beginning, A Graphic History of Racist Ideas in America. Professors Ibram X. Kendi and Joel Christian Gill, both of Boston University. Gentlemen, this has been a great conversation. Thank you both very much. Thank you. Thank you. Encourage everybody to pick up a copy of Stamped at the Beginning at your local bookstore. And this is just one of the many programs that come from the Commonwealth Club. If you'd like to watch more or if you'd like to support the club's efforts in making both in-person and virtual programming, you can visit them online at commonwealthclub.org slash events. Until we meet again, I'm Joshua Johnson. Thank you so much for making time for us. Take care now. Thank you for joining us for this program at Inforum at the Commonwealth Club. We're open and hosting many exciting programs, and we'd love to see you here. Join us in person in downtown San Francisco. Find out about tickets at commonwealthclub.org slash Inforum. We hope you enjoyed this radio program. Today, you heard Ibram X. Kendi and Joel Christian Gill in conversation with Joshua Johnson. Join us again next time for another new program from Inforum. Thanks for listening.